Welcome to Black Agenda Radio, where we provide news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly. This week, we discuss how elite institutions and corporate media censor on behalf of the Israeli state. But first, we get an overview of current U.S. foreign policy and learn how it endangers world peace and the world itself. Welcome to Black Agenda Radio. I'm Margaret Kimberly. Dr. Gerald Horn currently holds the John J. and Rebecca Moores Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. The latest of his many books is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Today, he joins us to discuss the many interesting events in U.S. foreign policy. So there's a lot going on. Uh, Russia began what it calls its special military operation in Ukraine. Almost a year ago, the Biden administration um, didn't get exactly what it wanted, although it provoked this uh, crisis, but not content to have provoked this crisis. They've set their sights on China. And of course, there are other things happening as well. Let us know uh, what what your thoughts are about all of this. It is well that you link this escapade in Ukraine with the People's Republic of China, because I've argued many times previously, you cannot be to understand the Ukraine crisis without understanding the point that U.S. imperialism is increasingly challenged by Beijing, and its strategy now is to weaken Russia, the firewall that serves as of now to protect to a degree, Beijing from Washington's lances. And the idea is, is that if you weaken Moscow, you'll have smooth sailing ahead with regard to weakening China. But your audience should be aware of the fact this plan is not going very well, to put it mildly. Indeed, I would point your audience to a recent interview in the French publication Le Figaro, featuring the well-known French intellectual Emmanuel Todd, who suggests not only might we be at the incipient stages of World War III, with Russia and China on the one hand, facing off, squaring off against the United States as North Atlantic allies and possibly Japan and South Korea to boot. But this incipient conflict bids fair to be in the same category as previous U.S. foreign policy debacles, speaking of Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, to name a few. Because of that latter point, this has lulled certain foreign policy analysts to a false sense of security, because U.S. imperialism obviously was able to survive debacles in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. So why can't it survive World War III? Well, obviously, the difference is that the United States and its allies are up against two well-armed nuclear states. Speaking of uh, Russia and China, it's highly possible that not only will this conflict, that is to say this incipient World War III, be a mortal blow to U.S. imperialism, it could also be a mortal blow uh, to planet Earth as well, extinguishing all humanity if we're not careful. That brings me to a parallel controversy in Germany, ignited by General Erich Vaughn, a former top military advisor to former Chancellor Angela Merkel. And he suggests 
that his country and its U.S. ally tried to resolve this Ukrainian crisis sooner rather than later because he sees ahead is a major debacle, major catastrophe for the United States and its allies if they do not do so. And I understand why General Van has come to this conclusion. Uh, Simply look at the news coming out of Ukraine in the last few days. You've had uh, Mr. Zelensky, the leader, sack his spin doctor, and it's never good when in the midst of a war, you sack your major propagandist. Then the interior minister died the other day in a helicopter crash. Whenever a high-ranking official dies in an aviation crash, you should raise your antenna. I should also point to a number of intriguing essays in the House organ of U.S. imperialism, speaking of the Washington Post. You have the noted war criminal Michael O'Hanlon suggesting that the United States escalate the war in Ukraine. And I should mention what is obvious, which is that this conflict has gone beyond just a proxy war with credible reports of U.S. boots being on the ground in Ukraine, not to mention uh, neighboring states like Poland, Moldova, uh, Romania, uh, etc. We keep receiving these reports about uh, the United States and its allies uh, escalating by sending tanks, the Patriot air defense system, et cetera. But if history is any guide, uh, these military material will probably be destroyed on the ground uh, by Moscow, if not uh, sold into the black market by unscrupulous uh, Ukrainians who have been making uh, quite a fortune as a result of these billions of dollars in U.S. taxpayer dollars being transferred to their country. Although in all fairness, I should say that a lot of this aid is boomerang aid. That is to say, it's U.S. tax dollars uh, going to Lockheed and Raytheon, who then send their old stock into Ukraine, and then the profits redound to the benefit of the executives of these major corporations so that they can build yet another McMansion in Chevy Chase, Maryland, or Falls Church of Virginia. But it's not only that essay by Michael O'Hanlon, Henry Kissinger, unindicted war criminal himself, now pushing 100 years old, believe it or not, has just suggested that Ukraine be allowed to join NATO. Now, this is a kind of turnabout because early in the conflict, you would note that Mr. Kissinger was not speaking along those lines. I think that he may sense what Emmanuel Todd has articulated in Le Figaro, that is to say that the United States and its allies might be on the losing end of an incipient World War III, and therefore desperate measures are necessary. Desperate measures were also outlined in another essay in the Washington Post, this one penned by, yes, another war criminal, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former Pentagon Chief Robert Gates, who served under both Bush II and Mr. Obama. Uh, They, too, uh, warned that Ukraine is going down the tubes and desperate measures are needed. So we see that the signs are not looking very favorable right now for U.S. imperialism, which makes it all the more curious. Some of the more recent news from the Black Front, I'm speaking of the fact that the person we had thought was 
a dyed-in-the-wool dove. Speaking of 76-year-old Congresswoman Barbara Lee of Oakland, Berkeley, was standing in line to try to give Mr. Zelensky a hug when he showed up on Capitol Hill to address the Congress. Uh, Many of us were taken aback by this. I think that, in a sense, uh, Congresswoman Lee uh, might be involved in what might be called loud quitting. You're familiar with quiet quitting, which has been an emblem of the pandemic, where exploited workers basically resign without telling their bosses and fake at working. Well, I think that Congresswoman Barbara Lee, 76 years old, has just announced that she's running for the U.S. Senate to replace uh, the 80-plus-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein. But I think that her chances are rather slim. She could have run a credible race as a dove with regard to tacking the Ukraine escapade from the left, but running in a already occupied hawkish lane that will no doubt be occupied by Congressman Adam Schiff of Burbank, also of California, who will probably be running for this seat, not to mention Congresswoman Katie Porter of Orange County, California. Congresswoman Lee's chances uh, seem uh, rather dismal. I'm inclined to believe that she realizes this and she just is going to end her career with a bang, loud quitting, as I put it, by being defeated royally in a primary. And then you may or your audience may have heard of the so-called Ukraine Solidarity Network, which is a pro-war formation. Interestingly enough, it includes a number of reparations activists, which I found rather curious because if reparations to the descendants of enslaved Africans is to arrive on these shores, obviously this will have to be a direct result of global pressure. And with those having a bone to pick with Uncle Sam, which would be Russia and China and the BRICS nations in the first instance, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, why reparations activists would sign on to a pro-war escapade, quite frankly, the logic escapes me. But I think it's part of how the rise of China has unsettled uh, so many and has uh, upset the convenient narratives of U.S. imperialism. You see this reflected as well in the dearth of coverage of what has become a tradition. That is to say, the current tour of Africa in the beginning of 2023 by the recently installed Chinese foreign minister, Chin Gong, uh, this is a tradition, a worthy tradition of Chinese foreign ministers. They usually begin the year by traveling to Africa. This travel, this journey also involved a stop in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where unveiled was this spectacular building that will house the African Center for Disease Control, I dare say that Ebola and COVID and other diseases will have difficulty uh, digging their talons and claws into Africans as a result of this construction by uh, Chinese interests in Ethiopia. And this was also accompanied by another flap, this one involving South Africa and the United States, the United States objecting to the fact that South Africa is engaged in military maneuvers with Russia and reportedly China as well. This did not go down very well, to put it mildly, in Washington, coming in the wake of that photo opportunity involving four dozen plus African heads of state and government coming to Washington in December 2022 as a transparent maneuver to try to outflank China. But 
as George H.W. Bush once recalled some decades ago, when the United States was considered to be more flush than it is today, U.S. imperialism, it's fair to say, because of his $31 trillion in debt and other uh ill-advised maneuvers, has more will than wallet and is ill-prepared to confront or engage in a contest with the People's Republic of China, not to mention with Russia, with Turkey, with India, and with Brazil as well. Uh, Speaking of that latter country, I should mention the January 8th, 2023 imitation, pale imitation, if you like, of January 6th, 2021. That is to say, insurrectionists storming the capital of Brazil, unlike January 6th, where the transparent attempt was to prevent the peaceful transfer of power to Mr. Biden, uh, Lula da Silva, the winner had already been sworn in. Uh, He was hundreds of kilometers away inspecting flood damage. So one wonders if the so-called insurrectionists were just seeking to mimic their puppet masters uh, in Washington. Interestingly enough, the man in whose interest they were acting, speaking of the now fortunately departed Trump of the tropics, Mr. Bolsonaro, was lollygagging in Florida with his bosom buddy, the Donald. And also we should point out how Steve Bannon, conciliary of Mr. Trump, albeit recently defrocked, has also been in close touch with the Brazilian coup plotters. Speaking of coup plotters, I would be remiss if I failed to mention yet another pale imitation of January 6, 2021. And that happens to be the antics that occupied Washington, D.C. a few days ago with 15 ballots needed to install Kevin McCarthy of Bakersfield, California, as the new speaker. This, in many ways, is a kind of slow motion coup d'etat by the hard right neo-fascist Freedom Caucus in Washington, D.C. As the press noted, Mr. McCarthy surrendered a good deal of his authority and power to these neo-fascists. This does not bode well for the progressive and democratically minded movement in the United States of America. But I dare say that given this aforementioned debacle that U.S. imperialism is now facing in Central and Eastern Europe, they'd be well advised to turn their attention to trying to rescue that catastrophe rather than exercising and pursuing their neo-fascist plans at home. Dr. Horn, you touched on so many different things. Uh, I wanted to comment on a couple of the things you mentioned last. Bolsonaro, yes, was uh, still is in the United States. He, uh, uh, I think he believed there was going to be a military coup. And then when it didn't happen, he sort of condemned uh, his his, uh, followers. Uh, He came into the U.S., before Lula was inaugurated. So he was still a head of state, which is why it was so easy for him to enter the country. Uh, Then after it failed, he, I don't know, he went to the hospital, said he had stomach pains. I'm sure he really did have stomach pains, having uh, uh, overseen this uh, uh, somewhat uh, laughable, it's not not funny when people do that, but uh, uh, for him to have uh, been uh, uh, so stupid. But what it does tell us is that Lula is going to have a very difficult time governing Uh, that nation, which is clearly very divided and because of what the United States has done. But Ukraine is the biggest thing in the news. And the thing I find most stunning 
is that it's clear that the Biden administration did not have a clue. Uh, it seems that all their policies, all their decisions were driven by wishful thinking. They wanted to believe that Russia's economy would crash if it was sanctioned. And so they did that. They wanted to believe that uh, if they gave Ukraine enough arms, eventually they would defeat Russia. And they have uh, forestalled defeat for a long time. But I think that is about to end. We have a president who, lest we forget, was the, I guess, viceroy of Ukraine in the Obama administration after they uh, assisted the right wing in uh, that 2014 coup. And he was responsible for um, uh, Ukraine was his portfolio. And I think he, this uh, man who is frankly not up to the job is determined to go through this process that just is not working. And it seems to me when things don't work, they find something else to do. So Ukraine blows up in their faces and they think that's a perfect opportunity to interfere with China and send Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan and, and whoever else to Taiwan. It is very, frankly, frightening to see this group of people who are ideologues and frankly, not very smart. Not very smart indeed. And speaking of a speaker to Taiwan, you may be aware of the fact that uh, Speaker McCarthy is headed to that rebel island off the coast of the People's Republic of China within weeks. Uh, this will escalate the tensions. But I hope he takes on board his flight reading material, such as the recent report from the Center for Strategic and International Studies headquartered in his own Washington, D.C., that suggested that a conflict with China militarily would not end well for U.S. imperialism. In fact, the Pentagon has had tabletop exercises aplenty in recent years that have come to a similar conclusion. Speaking of Mr. Biden, recall that he predicted that the ruble would turn to rubble as a result of sanctions. Obviously, that has not happened. The stores, it is reported, are full of consumer goods. Even the New York Times did a story a few days ago talking about how the former Soviet Republic, that is Georgia, supposedly a reliable U.S. ally, has been transporting goods aplenty across the border into Russia, keeping Russian stores stocked. I should also mention that the movement in the United States should insist that Mr. Bolsonaro be extradited immediately, if not sooner, back to Brazil so that he can face the music and perhaps, like his patron, Mr. Trump, wind up in an orange jumpsuit behind bars. Speaking of Brazil and the detention of heads of state, uh, we should also raise a similar cry about the detention of uh, Peruvian President Castillo, uh, who's been detained by the military uh, for a number of weeks now, with hardly a peep coming from the U.S. State Department, unsurprisingly. And I should also mention this so-called Three Amigos Summit that took place in Mexico City uh, just a few days ago, and featuring uh, Mr. Biden, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, and AMLO, President Lopez Obrador of Mexico. There are those of our friends on the left who've dismissed it as a neoliberal exercise, but I would like to caution our friends on the left that there is rising tension between Mexico and the United States based upon Mexico's friendliness with socialist Cuba, based upon the fact that Texas energy interests, which has been their ambition for decades, would like to get their grubby little paws on Mexican 
energy, uh, which, of course, has been a patriotic duty to protect since the days of President Cardenas in the 1930s. Texans, or at least the 1% in Texas, have gone so far as to propose that remittances, money sent from Mexican workers on this side of the border to their families back home in Mexico, be taxed which would be a devastating blow uh, to these families, not to mention Mexico's economy. Because Washington, as it seeks to uh, decouple its economy from the People's Republic of China, has come up with the idea that Mexico can act as a kind of substitute. Mexico is not playing ball to the degree that Washington would like. And so therefore, immense and excruciating pressure is being placed on the government in Mexico City. And we should keep a careful and close eye on that bilateral relation, because we know that, for example, is the book that I published a few months ago that you so kindly mentioned, discusses in some detail, Texas or Tejas used to be part of Mexico before it was ripped off by U.S. warmongers in the 19th century. And we cannot necessarily rule out a replay of that dastardly history in the 21st century. You know, you talked about what the right wing in Congress has done, but the thing I find most stunning, and I wrote about it uh, last week, is that there's no comparable pushback from progressives. They do not do anything that their people want them to do. Say what you will about the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts of the world who are sneered at and called stupid. They have now gotten their leadership to do what they want them to do, but there is no similar pressure on the other side. Why do you think that is? I think it's complicated. I I think that we should recognize that the United States is an imperialist nation, that it did not have an origin story of bathed in glory going back to 1776. That revolt against British rule led to the United States becoming the captain of the international slave trade, not to mention uh, gobbling up more indigenous land. And I think because there is a fundamental misunderstanding of the origins of this country, uh, that leads to a misunderstanding of what its political representatives might be capable of. And uh, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that uh, myself, I'm now under an unremitting assault and attack for writing books, basically laying out the case for what I just mentioned a moment or two ago about the United States being a counter-revolutionary power uh, from its inception. And that unless and until we recognize that reality and are able to countervail the right wing of this country by forging international alliances across the oceans and south of the border. Until we're able to do that, I'm afraid to say that we will probably perpetually be on the verge of fascism. Well, that is our our origin. I suppose that is our origin story, isn't it, as a settler colonial nation? Is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we uh, finish? Well, we should keep, as should be always the case, a close eye on events in Africa. Uh, Zimbabwe is marching towards elections. Uh, The Solidarity Movement, with rare exception, has not done a good job in helping to support Zimbabwe against the unfair sanctions imposed upon that Southern African nation because it had the gumption to try to reverse the fruits of settler colonialism by seizing land from European invaders. 
who only arrived as recently as the 1890s, with many of them arriving as recently as the 1940s. As a result, they tried to drive that economy into the ditch of tried to punish South Africa for not going along with the sanctions regime. We should keep an eye on Zimbabwe as well as we should keep an eye on what used to be called Francophone Africa. Uh, There is rising tension between Mali and Paris, between Burkina Faso and Paris. You noticed, I'm sure, that President Macron of France was in Washington for the first state dinner of the Biden regime, that there is close cooperation via AFRICOM between Washington and Paris in Africa to the detriment of Africans. This is taking place despite the fact that President Macron, more than most, recognizes that Washington is leading uh, the European Union into a dead end with regard to this escapade in Ukraine, that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act is providing subsidies to U.S. industry to the detriment of French industry. And because of the European Union being forced to observe or willingly observing sanctions against Russia, uh, this has compromised their ability to get energy from Russia, which is driving up energy prices, causing uh, European corporations to flee across the Atlantic to the smiles of the Fortune 500 uh, in this country. Uh, Not to mention the fact that U.S. energy interests, particularly natural gas interests on the Texas-Louisiana border, are making a major fortune by selling their wares into Europe as a result of the boycott of Russia. So we need to put pressure on not only U.S. imperialism, but its close ally, particularly its close allies in Brussels, speaking of the European Union. And that was Dr. Gerald Horn sharing his observations on U.S. foreign policy today. Welcome to Black Agenda Radio. I'm Margaret Kimberly. Ali Abunema is director of electronicintifada.net an independent online news publication and educational resource focusing on Palestine. He's also the author of One Country and the Battle for Justice in Palestine. He joins us from Chicago to discuss the much-publicized case of Ken Roth, who says he was denied a Harvard fellowship for expressing some criticism of Israel while director of Human Rights Watch. How does his experience and the reaction to his case differ from Palestinians when they are public in pointing out Israel's human rights abuses against Palestine? As soon as this story broke, uh, Ken Roth was longtime director of Human Rights Watch, which is part of the uh, human rights industrial complex, as I call it. He um, was uh, scheduled to go to Harvard as a fellow, and uh, then uh, his appointment was rescinded. And he believes, I believe he was told by someone It was because Human Rights Watch had criticized uh, some Israeli policies toward Palestine. Um, Now he's landed on his feet. He's at University of Pennsylvania instead of Harvard. Everything's good for him. But the case has gotten a lot of attention. And I think it's worthwhile that um, the censorship uh, about Israel is exposed. But I don't think that Ken Roth should be the poster child for uh, punishment of what happens to people who are vocal in pointing out Uh, the facts about Israel's human rights abuses. And uh, so I wanted to talk to you about the differences between uh, Roth and others and about the fact that Human Rights Watch 
does not deserve this uh, reputation it has. It's uh, often promotes U.S. Uh, imperialist policies around the world. Uh, absolutely. It's uh, important to remember that Human Rights Watch was actually founded as Helsinki Watch in the 1970s as a supposedly private organization, but it was founded very much as part of the uh, United States propaganda arsenal in the Cold War. So it only criticized the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries for their alleged human rights abuses. And to this day, uh, Human Rights Watch continues to serve as sort of an imperial gatekeeper for the United States, primarily focusing on countries that are official enemies of the United States. But of course, uh, it does criticize Israel and even the United States, a later development in its history, which I think is primarily in order to give it the credibility to attack U.S. official enemies. It's, you know, you simply can't maintain credibility as a global human rights organization if you're not saying something about Israel or the United States or other U.S. allies. Uh, but its harshest criticism is always reserved for U.S. official enemies. And I'll say also, as a journalist and as someone who obviously focuses on Palestine and the Israeli occupation and apartheid regime, that Human Rights Watch does produce some good research that we cite uh, when it comes to Israel. But I think it's important to understand how that exists and its limitations within this bigger political context, which, of course, Ken Roth has been primarily responsible for since he was the uh, director of Human Rights Watch from 1993 until uh, just last year. Let's talk about uh, some of the people who've suffered far more than uh, uh, Ken Roth, as, who, as I point out, has landed on his feet. Uh, people such as Stephen Salida, who um, was um, given a tenured position. He was offered and accepted. So he was uh, to be working at the University of Illinois, uh, Champaign-Urbana, until he um, posted a series of tweets about Israeli attacks on Gaza, the human uh, rights violation, the war crimes against the people of Gaza. Uh, his offer was withdrawn. There was a protracted legal case. And now he cannot get a job in academia anywhere. So I think about people like him and others punished far more harshly than the Ken Roths of the world. That's absolutely right. And the first thing to say is we have to condemn the Harvard Kennedy School's cowardice, even in the case of Ken Roth. As he has told the story, and I have no reason to doubt his account, he was offered a fellowship to write a book. He uh, said that he had a very friendly conversation with the dean of the Kennedy School. I believe his name is Doug Elmendorf in the summer. Everything was on track. But then two weeks before when he was supposed to start, he was informed by a very embarrassed uh, university official that because of his criticism of Israel, he would not be allowed to take up that post. And that kind of cowardice is, I have to say, quite common in American academia, particularly when it comes to Israel, uh, from university administrators, especially at our so-called elite institutions, which pretend 
that they are bastions of uh, academic freedom and challenging power, but they are, of course, the lapdogs of power. And that's, you know, so that's what happened with the Kennedy School. But as you rightly point out, the kind of attention that Ken Roth has gotten is completely out of all proportion to the harm he has suffered as compared with the silence about the many, many Palestinian academics, not just Palestinian academics, but primarily Palestinian academics who have paid with their whole careers. So you mentioned Stephen Salaita. I covered his case closely. Uh, this was in tw- it began in 2014. He had already bought his house in Urbana-Champaign. He'd mo- he was moving from Virginia Tech to take up a position in the uh, the Native American Studies Department, a tenured position. And it was because of donor pressure that the university rescinded his job and the lawsuit was there. Now, among academics, there was an uproar and he did get support. But there was no mainstream support. I think even Pen America wouldn't come out openly and support him. Uh, We certainly didn't see the kind of coverage and outrage that uh, has surrounded Ken Roth. Joseph Massad, one of the most important Palestinian intellectuals, I think one of the most important intellectuals of our time at Columbia University, has been the target for 20 years of a determined Israel lobby campaign to have him fired or to have his tenure rescinded because of his scholarship on Palestine and uh, his criticism of Israel. And not only do I see no mainstream liberal support for him, if anything, I would say his university has failed to come out and properly defend him as as I would expect a university to do in such a situation of a long-running harassment campaign. In the UK, it's a similar story we've seen recently. I'm just talking about the recent cases. Uh, David Miller, one of the uh, top experts on the Israel lobby. His scholarship was on the Israel lobby, and that so angered the Israel lobby that they launched a a massive national campaign in the UK, pressuring Bristol University, where he was teaching, to have him fired, and they duly fired him. Uh, More recently, Shahid Abu Salameh, a Palestinian from Gaza. She is a wonderful writer. We were publishing her articles at the Electronic Intifada for many years before she moved to the UK, became an academic and became a lecturer at uh, Sheffield Hallam University. And in fact, we have an interview with her at the Electronic Intifada about the ordeal that she went through there, being targeted by the Israel lobby, who made her life so difficult that she eventually had to leave her position at the university. So those are just some recent cases. Now, if I can just say what was interesting, uh, Ken Roth, as we're speaking this morning, Ken Roth just a few hours ago was on NPR's Morning Edition, a national show on national public radio, talking about this incident with Harvard. Well, first of all, it's notable that NPR is covering it when I I am not aware of them covering the routine censorship uh, and persecution of Palestinian academics. That said, what was interesting was Kenneth Roth said in that interview that he said, well, you know, I'll be fine, which is true. And that's a fair acknowledgement from him. He's not going to suffer irreparable harm from this. But he said, you know, my concern is what will be the message that young academics will take away 
uh, which is that if they're too vocal or forthright in their criticism of Israel, that they could suffer career consequences. And it was so interesting to me how Kenneth Ken Roth put this as a hypothetical without acknowledging that this has been happening for decade after decade after decade, and without taking the opportunity to name and shame some of the universities who have recently targeted uh, Palestinian particularly, but also other academics, the way he now has been targeted. And I find that very strange that he would not use this platform to do that if he was indeed sincerely concerned about censorship when it comes to Israel. You know, one of the things uh, I have noticed uh, about this discussion of, uh, of Ken Roth is uh, about Human Rights Watch, the organization which he led for 30 years, which has this uh, great reputation I don't believe deserved. And I was I was looking back. I, I had these memories of uh, responding to him on uh, Twitter. So I was looking up my 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 little efforts to troll politely. I just wanted to point out what you said about the role that uh, Human Rights Watch plays. He tweeted about a, an, an image. This is one example of Xi Jinping. Ping, an official image of Xi Jinping, and he said it was airbrushed and shows that this is an insecure man. I mean, it's just nonsense. But uh, another in which he claimed that uh, Venezuela's elections were fraudulent and uh, the Venezuelan government did not allow any observers in, which is uh, blatantly untrue. And uh, this episode is giving him some gravitas that I don't believe that he uh, or his uh, organization, his former organization, deserve. Well, I I can't help but agree with you there. And uh, as as we noted earlier, Human Rights Watch and in its earlier form as Helsinki Watch was founded really to criticize the Soviet Union and its allies during the Cold War. And only later did it start to criticize the U.S. and the countries allied with the U.S. like Israel. But again, using a different set of standards, which which I can get into a little later. But again, going back to Ken Roth's NPR interview, he talked about how in his conversation with the dean uh, of the Kennedy School, he was asked, do you have any enemies? And he said, yes, I do. And he listed the government of China, the government of Russia, and indeed the government of Israel, which tolerates no criticism, no matter how mild. But interestingly, he didn't say that the United States government considers him an enemy. And I think that's because they consider him an asset and an ally because of the propaganda services that he provides in the form of these kinds of unhinged attacks on official enemies of the United States, particularly Russia and China. Not to say that those countries are are above all criticism, certainly not. No country is. But when you look at how he talks about those countries and the substance of Human Rights Watch reports, you can see that there it is using, there it is engaged in a propaganda exercise. So, you could say, for example, well, is but then doesn't that invalidate all this criticism of Israel? If you're saying that it's mostly doing propaganda about China and Russia, then doesn't that vindicate the Israel lobby that says, well, Human Rights Watch also isn't telling the truth about Israel? That's not the case, because in order to gain credibility 
as a global human rights organization, Human Rights Watch must criticize Israel because in this day and age, with, with so much revulsion about Israel's brutal treatment of the Palestinians, uh, its system of apartheid, which now Human Rights Watch belatedly has acknowledged. You simply can't call yourself a human rights defender unless you're willing to criticize Israel in some way, just as Human Rights Watch also criticizes the United States. But the double standards are clear. For example, Human Rights Watch, again, this was under the leadership of Ken Roth, issued a report about uh, China's, uh, it's called, it was issued in, in 2021, Chinese government crimes against humanity targeting Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims. And this has been a big theme of uh, the, the sort of uh, effort to demonize China has been alleged genocide and alleged crimes against humanity against uh, Uyghur Muslims in China's Xinjiang province. The report that Human Rights Watch issued, and this isn't the first one that does this, relies to a very large extent on totally debunked propaganda put out by a guy called Adrian Zenz, a far-right anti-Semitic German Christian Zionist affiliated with the U.S. government-funded Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and the neoconservative Jamestown Foundation. To be fair to Human Rights Watch, many, many organizations have relied on the debunked quack and, and non-credible research of Zenz, who, among other things, believes that... Um, Something he's written, for example, he wrote an end times prophecy, prophecy uh, claiming that you know his vision of uh, of the end of the world quote requires that the Jews gain control of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which is currently the site of the Al Aqsa Mosque and the dome of the and the dome of the Rock Shrine and construct a third temple. And he wrote quote the Antichrist will establish a treacherous peace covenant with Israel. This is the man who is producing the so-called research that Human Rights Watch is relying on in its very, very serious reports about crimes against humanity in China. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you look at how Human Rights Watch criticizes Israel. Human Rights Watch does some useful documentation, and you will find us citing it from time to time. But it is the sort of ideological framework uh, that Human Rights Watch uses that is worthy of, of criticism. So in many reports, including recent ones that came after Israel's massive attack on Gaza in May of 2021, Human Rights Watch issued a report basically equating Israel's aggression and occupation and attack on people in Gaza with the Palestinian resistance. And the logic was that the Palestinian resistance in Gaza is firing unguided rockets. These are inherently inaccurate, and therefore, if you fire them, it's uh, ipso facto a war crime because you can't aim them. So, you know, that it's indiscriminate. That makes it a war crime. Israel, on the other hand, has precision weapons from Boeing, from Raytheon, from Lockheed Martin, from you name it, and is using them to 
specifically target civilians. And yet the Palestinians come in for far harsher criticism than Israel for using the weapons at their disposal. And it's very interesting that even though Human Rights Watch does in fact carefully documented document crimes by Israel in Gaza, it does not call for an arms embargo on, on uh, Israel. You could say, well, maybe Human Rights Watch doesn't call for arms embargoes on anyone, but that's not the case. It just in recent years, Human Rights Watch has called on arms embargoes uh, against Ethiopia, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, South Sudan, Syria, uh, Syria, and the United Arab Emirates. And that may only be a partial list, but it has not called for an arms embargo on Israel. Similarly, Human Rights Watch has not called for personal individual sanctions against Israeli leaders which is remarkable given that they even went as far as calling for uh, personal sanctions against Lebanese authorities responsible for the Beirut port explosion, uh, which happened in August of 2020, I believe it was, which sadly killed many people, which was an act of grave negligence. Human rights wanted sanctions on Lebanon for that, but it won't call for sanctions on Israel for its attacks on Palestinians and its system of apartheid. Quite a remarkable double standard. Yes, and the double standard, uh, you know, we're we're talking about this uh, well-known organization, but we have to also talk about the other elite institutions, the universities we've discussed, and the corporate media. Um, You know, they can get away with this stuff when, for example, uh, another uh, human rights group, Amnesty International, which is also problematic, finally said that Israel is an apartheid state. Hello, yes, it is, and who doesn't know that? But in any case, it was a a news, a significant change that they would say that, and a good thing. But the New York Times responded to that by just not reporting on it. And uh, I recall people had this, you know, countdown to see how many days would go by before the New York Times ever reported on this story. And they just didn't. What the corporate media does to censor facts about Israel and its human rights abuses. Well, the main one is ignoring them, as you just pointed out. But the other thing is spin. I mean, the New York Times really, and and we, we do a lot of coverage of the media at the Electronic Intifada. So we have lots of stories on how CNN and the Washington Post and the New York Times and others do this. Uh, so, so one is ignoring things. The other is spin in the sense of, of doing damage control for Israel. And I think that's the primary role of the New York Times. So it's sort of softening the edges of the facts uh, and trying to create a sort of a fake balance where none exists, just as uh, Human Rights Watch does, but, you know, by sort of equating the Palestinian resistance with the Israeli aggressor. Of course, there's no moral equivalence between a occupied, colonized indigenous people defending its very existence on the one hand, and a nuclear-armed, U.S.-armed settler colonial aggressor using violence to enforce its its superiority on the other hand. Clearly, one of those is uh, moral and um, rightful, whereas the other has no legitimacy. But if you read the New York Times or Human Rights Watch's reports, you you get this kind of fake balance, this both-sidesing that is so endemic in in U.S. media. So I would say that the New York Times is really Israel's most effective 
PR agency because it always has this pose of, well, we just, you know, we're reporting and it's even critical of Israel, just like Human Rights Watch, but it's always about limiting the permitted boundaries of discussion. So really, really gatekeeping in a sense. Can I say something, Margaret, as well about universities? Because again, the the elite institutions, I think, merit scrutiny in terms of how they portray themselves, but the reality, which is how they function as really servants, I mean, really an inseparable part of the military, industrial, human rights, imperial complex. And so Harvard Kennedy School is one example. I can give you another recent example. Columbia University, you may have heard, has just hired a new professor. Do you do you know who that is? Uh-huh. <laughs> Hillary Clinton, yeah. Hillary Rodham Clinton, a, a person who by any reasonable standards should be under indictment and on trial in a properly constituted war crimes tribunal for her crimes against humanity around the world, not least, of course, Libya, which she played a, a central role in the destruction of Libya and the uh, turning of Libya into a horrifying failed state with open slave markets. And I I just want to read you, if I can, if I may, a sentence or two from the email that Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, sent around to the Columbia University community just two weeks ago announcing Hillary's hiring. He said, I've had the great pleasure of knowing Hillary personally for three decades, since her early days as First Lady of the United States. Her public service has expanded since then, most notably in her remarkably successful tenure as United States Senator for the State of New York, in her impressive role as Secretary of State, and in her two historic and record-breaking presidential campaigns. Given her extraordinary talents and capacities, together with her singular life experiences, Hillary Clinton is unique and most importantly exceptional in what she can bring to the university's missions of research and teaching, along with public service and engagement for the public good. Now, I ask you, if that was coming from the president of the university of, of a university in an official US enemy state, if that was from the president of the University of Tehran or Shanghai or Moscow or wherever you want, talking about a former high official of that country's government, wouldn't that be a, be held up as a prime example of how these universities are not independent? are simply uh, there to enforce official ideology and propaganda. But this is what passes for an elite free-thinking institution in the United States. Yes, I, I thank you for, for reading all of that. Columbia is uh, problematic as uh, I live here in New York City. It's problematic for uh, many reasons, has deep connections here in the city and uh, seized a lot of property through 
with the help of the city through eminent domain. Uh, I'm calling it a seizure. I, I think that's what it is. But uh, I, I think you make a great point. You know, Hillary Clinton should not be uh, her name should be mud, frankly, for any number of reasons for uh, how is she teaching students? This is the woman who said who laughed about killing the president of Libya, Muammar Gaddafi. We came, we saw he died and laughed about it. She should not be able to get a job anywhere. And instead, she is sought after as a speaker, as a writer, as a professor. Uh, it really does uh, show you the depth of connections uh, between these institutions and the state. If I can just make one other point about Harvard. So, again, the Harvard Kennedy School rejected Ken Roth for his, albeit uh, very mild criticism of Israel and Human Rights Watch's very circumscribed criticism of Israel. But at the same time, the Harvard Kennedy School hosts a fellowship called the Wexner Israel Fellowship, which routinely hosts as fellows uh, Israeli military officers. So if you're a an actual Israeli military officer who has taken part in massacres of Palestinian civilians in Gaza, you will be welcome at the Harvard Kennedy School. Whereas if you are somebody who has criticized Israel for those massacres, you will not be welcome. I think it's so important for people to understand the role that places like Harvard and Princeton and Georgetown and all of these places play in public life in laundering elite and imperial ideologies and really rewarding these war criminals, whether it be Israeli war criminals or Hillary Clinton and so many others, with uh, Condoleezza Rice, of course, who heads an institution at Stanford after uh, being George uh, George W. Bush's Secretary of State during the you know, during the invasions and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. torture programs, the U.S. invasion of Lebanon, sorry, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 2006, a horrifying massacre of more than 1,200 civilians, more than a million cluster bombs were dropped by Israel on Lebanon. And she hailed that as the birth pangs of a new Middle East, something that she welcomed. And she is now very comfortably uh, at Stanford. Uh, undoubtedly, she never worries about where the next meal is coming from. And she doesn't have to worry about ever facing any accountability for her crimes. And that was Ali Abunima discussing censorship of those who speak out against Israeli apartheid. Thank you for joining this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit blackagendareport.com, where you'll find a new and provocative issue every Wednesday. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.